With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to Draft Deeper on the No Ceilings NBA podcast feed. Thank you so much for joining us on this lovely Monday morning edition of the podcast. Joining me tonight is Maxwell Baumbach, lead co-host of the Draft Deeper podcast. Steven, unfortunately, can't be with us, but it's for a good reason. Steven's on the road on assignment seeing a player who I also got to see this past week and someone who we're going to be talking about on the podcast tonight and Taylor Hendricks. He couldn't make this episode of the show, but nevertheless... Maxwell and I are still going to roll strong, and and we have some interesting discussions to get into, to to say the least. Right, Maxwell? How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. I'm really excited because there are, yeah, there are some real interesting names here, and I don't know. I'm, I'm intrigued to see where we come out on them. I'm excited to see what the response to where we come out on these players is. I'm I'm just fired up. Like I looked through the list of players again this afternoon that we uh, had scheduled to talk about. And it's just one of those episodes where like, all day I was just kind of thinking about it, stewing about it, and I'm, I'm ready to go. I mean, we're talking about plenty of big names. I had I had a really great week live scouting. I was in Philadelphia, the Sea Temple and UCF. I was in Philadelphia again on Saturday night to go see UConn and Villanova. So we're going to talk about some bigger names, some potential top 10 picks on my board and possibly on Maxwell's board as well. We'll we'll get some updates, but I did want to start with a few players who Maxwell has written about over the last few weeks and then is going to have a piece coming out on Tuesday. We we, got to give some of the other guys some shine. We always start with my stuff. I know I'm the founder of Draft Deeper, but the show can't always be about me to start. We got to mix it up a little bit here and there. And Maxwell actually is affording us the perfect opportunity to mix it up because I don't want to start with the player that Maxwell wrote about a few weeks ago in Jalen Pickett. I actually want to go to where he's writing this week. I want to talk about Oso Igadara, the Marquette yeah. forward, six foot nine, 205 pounds. Maxwell wanted to do a deep dive. He's actually, if you haven't followed Maxwell on Twitter, first of all, how dare you at Boundboards mm-hmm. is his hat. Yeah, what are you but, doing? Yeah, what, what are you doing if you're not following Maxwell? But he puts out a poll every single week, or at least he's been starting to, regarding mm. play if a fan favorite, which player do you want him to take a stab at and write about for the prospect overview? And Oso Iguodaro won the poll last week. I'm handily. not surprised. Like handily, handily won it. Mm-hmm. I'm not surprised, though, because as we're going to get into to start, he's been a pretty popular prospect amongst draft Twitter circles. He's a guy who's coming up. He's getting anywhere from like top 40 to top 60 grades on people's boards. He's had plenty of time to shine in the spotlight now, given Marquette's been not only one of the best teams in the Big East, but they've been one of the best teams in the country for months now, really. I mean, they started off as more of the the sleeper school 
as I wanted to dub them right, they had a few interesting prospects. Olivier Massons Prosper, uh, David Joplin is somebody who I like, Camp Jones. They, they have a number of guys who I think are going to get NBA attention one way or another, but also Iguodaro has been the name to pop, and he's he's an incredibly funky prospect. So, Maxwell, you have to start. You're the one who's writing about him. If I start talking about Oso, this podcast may go off the rails pretty quick, and the yeah, audience yeah, will yeah. soon understand why. So tell mm-hmm. myself as well as the audience about Oso Iguodaro and, and why he's been a prospect who's been buzzing in draft circles. Yeah, I, so the like the title of the article is Oso Iguodaro's Beautiful Game because the way that he plays basketball is beautiful. Like it, it is a very aesthetically pleasing game to watch on the basketball court. And I think that is a big part of his buzz is I think that um, subtly, and I'm, I'm sure I'm guilty of this at times too, like evaluators can tend to gravitate towards players that have a game that is exciting to watch and fun because it's easy to be like, I'm doing work. I'm watching a guy who's very fun to watch. And it, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you can have your favorites and guys that you enjoy watching. Uh, but also a guitar for those unfamiliar. Uh, he's at Marquette. He is six foot nine, um, listed at 215 pounds. He is ostensibly their center. Um, and he is a fantastic passer. Um, so to start to get into the passing, um, I and I'm going to reference this a couple times throughout this podcast. I put together this little database for myself that is um, basically it's advanced numbers for prospects from the last like eight years, I believe it is, um, during their final college season before okay. the NBA draft. So you can kind of stack up. And like what I like it for is for flawed prospects. So if there, for example, is a guard. Um, who has a low usage rate and a lower assist rate for a guard. I can sort it out and see, okay, well, who were guards like that that made it? Mm-hmm. Um, so like in that example, it's usually like guys who are nuclear shooters, like a, a Bryn Forbes or something like that, or it's your defensive menaces. It's your Caruso's. It's it's those yep. type of guys, Anthony Melton. Um, so this is an easy way to be like, okay, well, if this guy's going to make it, what does it have to look like? Um, for Oso, the thing that like he blows out of the water in there is if I sort, uh, big men from that time period by assist percentage. Um, the top 20 percentile have an assist rate of 13.5 or above. Um, Oso's assist rate this year is 18.5%. So 18.5% of the assists from Marquette are coming from him when he's on the floor. Uh, that's crazy high for a big man. Ridiculous. Crazy high. Um, so the next closest would be Xavier Tillman. who had an 18.1. So he would have a higher assist rate than everybody in this database. And it's really impressive too, because he plays with Tyler Kolek, who is like one of the best table setting guards in college basketball. Um, So theoretically, like he should probably have a lower assist percentage. And in many settings, he would have a higher one because they'd be running even more offense through him. Tyler um, Kolek, I believe was all, all named all big East. If I'm correct. He should be one of the guards. Yeah. Like not, not a draft guy, but like a phenomenal college player. Um, So the other thing I looked up was high major college players from the last 18 years who had an assist percentage over 18 um, are six foot nine and above uh, and had a two to one assist to turnover ratio. And it is uh, Oso Iguodaro, my guy who just keeps coming up in every article I write. And like, I can't stop thinking about him because he's like fascinating to me as like far as where the league is going. Dean Wade. We're getting Dean Wade talk again. I feel like I text guys like once a week. I text Nathan once a week. No, I was going to say, you and I text once a week about Dean Wade. Wade. 
Yeah. Uh, and then, and then uh, Kyle Anderson is the other one who's not actually six foot nine, but he's listed at six foot nine. So it just shows like how rare this is. This guy is truly yeah. a rare and very skilled passer. Um, there are some other things to like too, like his block rate uh, measures out pretty well using those same metrics. His steal rate measures out pretty well. So if you're looking at like the feel factors as far as like assists, uh, you know, steal rate, like that kind of stuff is good. Um, then like it kind of starts to get murky. So I'm going to talk about the other like two good things he does. And then we'll get into like why we're kind of scared about Oso uh, and why we're probably a little, I'm going to say I'm a little cooler than the consensus on Oso. And I'm going to say that Nathan is, is like in Antarctica compared yeah, to Yeah. I'm just, yeah. We get to me. I, I will, I will give it um, to the audience straight. I mean, yeah, we are, we're a very yeah. positive podcast. Most we are. of the time mm-hmm. we had to start off with the heat every once yeah. in a while so uh the other things that he does really well is just like simply rolling to the basket like he's a very effective play finisher um he is like has uh like he's in the i want to say top 20 in college basketball and dunks on the year don't have that in front of me at the moment um but he finishes a lot of plays really well he knows how to roll he knows how to space himself away from the defense and give his point guard some space but get himself open he knows how to sneak behind the back line of the defense um so that makes him a very effective finisher when he can't dunk it he has very soft touch on his floater and push shot he's got an excellent floater um he can stop on a dime too so when he's rolling to the basket hard and then somebody stops in front of him he's not going to barrel him over get called for a charge he's coordinated enough to stop and just pop it up with his little floater um the other thing he does is he does stay in front well when he switched on to smaller defenders he can contain guards um force him to take rough he has to stay in front well (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah we're gonna get to that yeah 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 we're gonna get we're gonna get to the bad stuff Nathan. hold on hold on we're gonna we're gonna say the things he does well first um so there is like some interesting switchability like he's not gonna be a guy that would get mismatch hunted by smaller players sure um which is a nice thing for a big man um do you want me to lead off the concerns or do you want to do you want to go full negative no you can you, okay. you can you can go in depth about the concerns right. i'm just going to give my blanket statement before you do that. Okay. I mean, Maxwell, for, for everyone who's listened to draft deeper, since I mm-hmm. began this podcast, you can probably count on one hand, the number of times I've engaged in legitimate hyperbole, like me coming out there saying yeah, something yeah, yeah. so brash, so bold that if it's wrong, it could make me look completely dumb <laughs> within a few years. Okay. Not as a college player, but as a prospect, as an NBA prospect not even another pro league prospect an nba prospect i think he sucks i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm just i'm just coming in hot today you, all right okay so you you said you said a lot of decent positives for oso but i think is, once yeah, once you run through the negatives positive. i think mm. you're going to arrive pretty quickly at a conclusion of so why are we talking about him as a prospect so go ahead yeah so okay let's start with what I'm gonna, what I, what I really think is probably the most glaring, which is his size, um, which I think a lot of people are gonna hand wave this, and I, I really don't think you should. I think this is very important to consider. Um, I worry about his size a lot, given where his interior defensive instincts are. So, right now, um, defensively, per synergy, opponents are shooting sixty-one point one percent around the basket against him which is really bad really bad 13th percentile 
in Calgary. And there's multiple reasons why. It's not just there's, like one reason. There's multiple glaring reasons why that is. So I'm going to start with the most simple of them, which is that he is six foot nine. So he does not have great positional size for a center because he is a center because he's taken three jump shots this entire season. So he kind of has to jump shots. We we got to say that in quotes, bud. like jump shots. I include in, in the article, a clip of the three jump shots and like, some of those aren't jump shots. Some you you mean the one floaters. is where he's absolutely is swatted out of this universe? Like his shot? Yeah, is, yeah. One yeah. of them gets blocked. Like it's not mm-hmm. good. So, um, yeah. So he's basically a five. But if he's a five, he's six foot nine, which is small. And he's also listed on the Marquette website at 215 pounds. Which if you look at the average NBA weight by position that's much closer to the average weight of a starting small forward than a starting center. So if you're talking about other guys that are like six foot nine bigs, you're talking about a guy like a Dembona who is much bigger and has a seven foot five wingspan and can yeah. jump out of the gym to, or a guy like Trace point, Jackson Davis. Average, who, average hmm. size and weight across the league. When I went and I did that query that we talked about last week was six, six to about 215 pounds. That's average. Yeah. That, that's he across is, the league. That's not just hmm. centers, which I'm sure if you went and, actually looked up what those numbers are he is far off yeah average center weight in the nba according to this article uh 247.8 pounds yeah (laughs) so he's he's given up 33 pounds um to your typical nba center um and then then there's like the six foot nine part of it which is like so if the guys that are six foot nine that like are center prospects we'll start there it's like i'm talked about a dempona like tjd can like jump out of the gym like again not the longest guy but super super athletic vertically. yeah legitimate two um, foot leaper yep yeah so then you look at the guys that are like six foot nine that play center minutes in the nba and it's like i don't like the best defenders in the league are like the guys that are six foot nine that play center in the nba like it's a very very high bar to clear or they're guys that can shoot the lights out it's like all right, well, we might be giving something up, but like we're going to get the shooting on the other end or something like that. Or they're incredibly powerful in the case of like when Draymond Green was smaller and used to play and like played a lot of minutes at the five. Like it doesn't seem like there's a clear cut. Like this is why you can get away with playing him at the five. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, it's not like, so, okay. So you might be listening to this and be like, all right, well, what about like Chet Holmgren? Like, why did you give Chet like all those excuses last year? And like, I think he gets moved easier than Chet did. Like yeah. guys rise through contact against him a lot. And like, like guards will like bump into him and like bump him backwards. Um, interior bigs, like get position on him all the time. And like, he can't overcome the seal. Um, he just gets bullied a lot. And like, I, like, I think a lot of people will use the whole, like, Oh, like, how's this gonna, guy going to stop Jokic or Embiid? And then people will be like, but nobody can stop Jokic and Embiid. And it's like, yeah, but there's a difference between like, are you going to give them 40 or, you know, contain them to 28. Um, and when you're watching Osuita Gudaro and guys like Eric Dixon and Jack Nunji and Ryan Kalkbrenner are just like dominating him in terms of interior positioning it's I watched really I watched a, 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 dumb, a play where Kalkbrenner just shoved him out of the way and just threw it down with two hands. And I'm yeah. like, if if Kalkbrenner's doing that, Kalkbrenner, not that he's a standout prospect by any means, but in no, terms I'm of comparing him to what you would expect from an average NBA center in terms of size and length, like 
that's what Oso Godara would have to go up against in the post, like more regularly than not. And if Kalkbrenner's doing that to him, like it's it's so so it's one thing when we talk about defending in the post, Maxwell, and mm-hmm. everyone throws out, well, can he guard Jokic and can he guard and bead? And then we have yeah. to walk that back and say, well, not everyone's Jokic and bead. Mm-hmm. But I think, but everybody is Ryan Kalkbrenner. Offensively, are Ryan Kalkbrenner. <laughs> yes, that's and like they are all Ryan Kalkbrenner. Like it is yeah it's it's really concerning to me um and then it's like other big man stuff where like he's marquette's leading rebounder but like his rebound rates on that same draft model i mentioned earlier that like love his assist rate he is like a very bad rebounder using that same method so it's like okay he's six foot nine he doesn't rebound he gets dominated on the inside by opposing big men smaller guys don't really have a problem like if he's the guy that's helping at the rim so like his block rate's okay but it's all like these blocks on guards like a lot of it's like on the outside like he just doesn't offer any real rim protection so then it's like you need a very specific fit for him to Bingo. work out um and that just gets like you just get into dicey territory especially with like I don't know. Like, I feel like a lot of times people will be like oh this guy would be such a good fit on this team but the league moves so fast now that it's like, do I really want to draft a guy based on fit, like considering how much player movement happens in the modern NBA? Like, does that even make sense to do? Um, I don't know. Like, it just it's so much easier to just take a guy that's more malleable. Um, so you're basically looking at a guy who you would need to play alongside a shot blocking shooting five. And there's like there's aren't a ton of those. Um and so then there's like, you're two still reasons, kind of giving like, up size at the four. Like there's just, it, it requires a really precise fit. There, there's at two reasons why I wanted to lead the podcast off with, with Oso Iguodaro. Uh, besides Maxwell just doing an outstanding job with the research behind it. And I'm sure I'm going to love his piece on Tuesday on NoSillingsNBA.com. I always do with his prospect overviews. But number one, wanted to get myself fired up, ready ready for the rest of the podcast, talking about a guy who we're, we're struggling with evaluating in a positive light. But number two, I think some of what Maxwell was discussing harkens back to what I wrote about last week in particular, which is when you break out prospects into these buckets that are so specific, right? The, the, I will try not to butcher this word on a podcast, but the specificity of a prospect, right? When it moves into that kind of territory, you either have to be freaking special or it's probably not going to work. And more times than not, NBA teams are drafting specific players who fit an overarching theme of where the league is going, right? Like drafting a shooting specialist is much easier to talk yourself into than drafting a player like Oso Igadaro, who, again, if we go back through everything that Maxwell talked about, I get it. He shoots 66% from the field. He's also taking every single one of his shots within three feet of the basket. So I would And hope, getting set up by, uh, as we previously mentioned, an all Big East point guard. Right. So I would hope, given the shot selection, that he would be making at least 66% of his shots for, for a good college team. He doesn't take any shots outside of the paint. He lacks the requisite size to play the five position full-time. So we're shoehorning him into this small ball five role when he can't space the floor. To Maxwell's point, he is not a legitimate rim protector. 
I get the block percentage. That statistic is a fraud. It's a point I, I try and bring up. I, I At least I have on, on different podcasts when, when I talk about different like metrics and numbers. Re- so, so elaborate on that a little bit, because I do think it's a really helpful statistic. Um, oh, no, 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 like no, no, no. I'm, no, I'm talking about his block percentage. Oh, OK. But yeah, I'm not but, talking oh, about it, the it, indicator. Okay. No, no. Steal and block rates are great indicators for NBA level success. Just in general, I don't even think we need to talk about like defense necessarily, like those being strong defensive indicators. Usually steal and block rates and rebounding rates are just strong indicators of this guy's an NBA level athlete. He's going to be able to survive on on an NBA floor for for a longer career than not. So it's not that I would say that the statistic itself is fraudulent. I'm saying his block rate is fraudulent because the vast majority of his blocks, and I took the time to boot up Synergy and watch every single one of his blocks on the season, the vast majority of them, as you said, Maxwell are on like these six foot three, six foot four guards. So like these situations yeah. where he has like five plus inches on these guys, he's clearly longer than them. He doesn't have to get too far up off the ground to swat their shot away. Like those are the types of plays he's making on the ball. He He's not acting as a true, true rim protector. You mentioned him staying in front of guys on the perimeter, using his feet. Well, I do think he's very aware of his surroundings. I do think he rotates. Well, I think he sees, and processes the game at a high level, which makes sense because of some of the passing flashes that you talked about. The problem is his mm-hmm. body does not allow him to react at the speed at which his brain is processing the game. And that's an issue. Like you mentioned how he keeps guys in front of him or how he has that ability. He better keep guys in front of him because when he gets beat off the bounce, he does not re- recover very well. He, he does not. It, it, it's a lost cause. That's a bucket at the basket. It is what it is. So just... Given the the size limitations, the athletic limitations, the offensive repertoire limitations, and then the defensive shortcomings without even really putting too much stock into the rebounding, like if, it, if you're playing him in a small lineup as the five man, that means you better have like at least three other plus positional rebounders around around him to make up for the fact that he's not seven foot, 250 pounds grabbing, you know, almost every rebound in sight with like a... 20 plus percentage defensive rebounding mark. So it's like, there are just way too many negatives for me to buy in. And, and, and the positives you outline, they, they make up an interesting prospect in theory. But when you actually look at the tape in practice and you go past some of those statistics, he comes up as a significantly worse Brandon Clark, in my opinion, and a significantly worse, I can't believe I'm saying this, but Trace Jackson Davis. I would okay. so much rather draft somebody like Trace Jackson Davis than I would Oso Iguodaro. And I'm not even the biggest Trace Jackson Davis guy. I think I have, I have Trace around like the top 45. I think I have him like 46 on my board. There's wiggle room depending on who declares and who doesn't for Trace to get into the 30s. Like, I, absolutely. But... If I don't even think Oso's in the same universe as somebody like a Trace Jackson Davis, and I know I'm being really strong. I, I know I'm being really mm-hmm. forthcoming with this evaluation, but I just want to hammer home, again, the specific nature of his draft case. I, I just don't think NBA teams are trending in this type of direction to take this much of a swing on somebody like him. Playing the small ball five in the NBA is much easier said than done. We all are guilty of throwing that term around way too often, myself included. I'll raise my hand mm-hmm. for that one. 
it's way harder than just saying so. And just given all the hurdles we laid out for Oso and where the league is going in terms of offensive efficiency from the perimeter, being able to cover ground, being able to guard size in multiple spots, I just, I just do, I don't see it. I, I don't see it with Oso Iguodaro. He will not make the top sixty on my board, and I, I would be surprised at this point if he had a lengthy runway in the NBA. And that's just my strong mm-hmm. opinion. It may be considered a hot take by some. That's just where I sit as a scout. And as an evaluator, I needed to get the negative out of the way before we made the vast majority of this podcast much more positive. Yeah, and I I think a lot of that's fair. Um, I I still think, like, I can see a team doing it. Like, I can see a team talking themselves into, like, this guy's got size. He's such a rare passer. The floater touch is good. Maybe he just needs, like, an elbow jumper to be effective. And then even then, like, you can run handoff stuff with him a little bit easier everything just opens up a little bit more. Um, I think there's like a real chance for an explosion if he goes back to school and like just works on that. Cause I, I honestly don't think he needs to be like a knockdown three point shooter and the shooting indicators no. aren't great. Like he's, he's not a good like free throw shooter, even like 61% on free throws uh, over his college career. Um, but I, I do still think there's reason for optimism. Like this, this is a rare passer for his size. This is a guy who like, was basically a role player a year ago. We've seen a giant leap from him. Maybe there's more in there. Um, but yeah, it's a guy this year, like he's just not, not a top 60 guy for me at the moment that could change. Maybe I'll, you know, do more research and I have watch more film and, and I'll see something. But I think the, the fit that's required is very specific. And I don't, I don't love the athleticism. I don't love the size. I don't mm-hmm. like the rebounding. It's just too much. There's just too much. And like, again, when we're talking about prospects that aren't like, guaranteed top 25 guys you're dealing with significant flaws like there are guys that have tons of warts and like they do something well enough that they make it anyway and that could be the case with those is passing there are just other guys i'd i'd rather bet on at this stage and and i agree with you about developing not necessarily a three-point shot but like an elbow jumper that that'd be great mm-hmm. if we at least knew that he was confident enough to attempt them in game yeah. like we're not even yeah. at we we were discussing last week about how much of a stretch it is for somebody who's like a 27, 28% three point shooter in college to raise their shot all the way up to like a league average mark of like 34, 35 from the NBA line. And we Mm -hmm. talked about how much of a stretch that is. So now we're asking somebody to implement something in his game that we have quite literally no evidence that it exists. I I get the floater touch. I get that he, he has a really good hook shot going, going to his opposite. Like I, I get these things, but there is zero evidence that a jump shot exists for him. And so mm-hmm. I'm not going to bake that into his evaluation of, well, if he had this, then we would be talking about X. I, I'm considering it a non-factor because to my eyes and, and to my understanding right now, it's a non-factor. And I think when we get into that territory of projection, right, like projecting something forward that we have zero evidence of, not even like flashes, the mm-hmm. waters get really murky really quick. To, to something yeah. that I know you've talked about in, in the past. So we we spent a lot of time on Oso Iguodaro. We spent more time than I planned to spend on Oso Iguodaro, but I do think that Maxwell Maxwell does something unique for us in that, he number one, he's always in the weeds. He, he's looking at real sleepers in the draft, very much so like our Nick Hager Johnson with a sleeper deep dive series. Like Maxwell is always looking for prospects in, in ridiculous corners of the country as far as uh, division one schools are concerned, but he's also not afraid 
to go out and evaluate and talk about guys who don't have the clearest cut path succeeding in the NBA. Maxwell's never been a guy who makes his bones talking about exclusively top 30 prospects on everyone's big board. Mm-hmm. So that's why when he takes the time to write about a prospect like him, and, and my opinion is much more divisive than where his might be or where the general public's might be, I want to talk about those things on Draft Deeper because I want our discourse to be different. I don't want our discourse to sound the same as any other draft podcast out there talking about the same guys. So I'm not afraid to bring a strong opinion out Every now and then. Again, I'm usually a very positive evaluator. I usually see a lot of different pathways for prospects, and I'm not afraid to go out and state those pathways. This is just one of those really rare instances. I get where everyone's coming from. I just personally don't see it. And if I'm burned, guess what? Mm -hmm. Every single scout makes mistakes. Every single scout gets things wrong. I will not be afraid to, to eat crow. If Oso Iguodaro in two years it is as productive of a big as like a Brandon Clark, for example. And that, mm-hmm. that's that's just my final two cents that I'll give on this. So you did write about another out-of-the-box prospect in Jalen Pickett at the guard spot, the Penn yes. State guard. Older prospect, right? Doesn't have as much youth on his side as someone like an Oso Iguodaro, but another one of these guys, Maxwell, who the statistics are really, really interesting, as I know you're going to get into. But the tape itself is also really fascinating, right? Like, mm-hmm. I know you're going to talk about how much of his possessions are essentially one way or another factoring in like a post-up. He's not the same, though, as one of these like Villanova guards that I just got to watch on Saturday, for example, like like, like a Caleb Daniels or, or a Justin Moore or somebody like that, who mm-hmm. they're trying to post everyone up because they quite literally can't create separation in other ways. I think Jalen Pickett actually knows how to get to his get to his spots much more effectively than guys like that, but he still relies on something that isn't exactly the most common thing for a guard to deploy almost every single trip up with a 27% usage rate in the NBA. So tell tell us about yeah. why Jalen Pickett is such a peculiar prospect. He's just bizarre. Like he's <laughs> he's a he's a post-up guard. Like he he does so much of his work in the post and like he yeah, so on Synergy, I know when I wrote the commas, around 23% of his possessions were post-up. It's still there. And, like, around 30 or pick-and-roll. But a lot of the pick-and-rolls, like, I come off the screen, like, oh, the guard went under on me, time to post him up. So it's, like, it's still, still gonna, It's still going to result in the same thing. That's what but I mean. But it's a post-up. Yeah. yeah, like, it's still a friggin' post-up. Um, but he is crazy productive, and he is super trustworthy, which I talk about all the time. It's just, like, an underrated asset to consider is like, yep. is a coach going to trust putting this guy in a court? And with Jalen Pickett, like he takes phenomenal care of the ball. Like he, he's like consistently averages, a near three to one assist the turnover guy, right? Yes. Like every single year. So even back as a freshman at Siena, 6.7 assists to 2.4 turnovers. And now this year as a graduate in the big 10, seven assists per game to 2.1 turnovers. Uh, averages 7.3 rebounds per game uh, has a pro body from just like a build standpoint. Like he's, He's kind of slow, which we'll talk about a little bit. That's like a huge, huge downside to him, but um, really strong, like super, super strong. So uh, makes a mark on the glass because of that at 6'4", 210. Um, it's like he he weighs just about the same as Oso Iguodaro at 6'4". <laughs> uh, but Jalen Pickett uh, also is... So he, he spent three years at Siena before Penn State, and I think that experience really helped him as a shot maker a lot. Like he is very reliable as far as like hey you just gotta you gotta figure something out and hit one in the mid-range or 
you've you've got to just make a tough shot late in the clock. Like he's he's good at that. Um, so that that's something I really enjoy about his game. Um, and he's been just a good three point shooter on the year. The volume is kind of low. Like he's only taking three point four a game this year. He's at thirty eight point eight percent this year. Over the course of his college career, he's just under thirty six percent. So it's a little bit scary, but um doesn't he yeah, kind of only need he, he i feel like he's the kind of guy who i'm looking at him to shoot a three when like they they go under on a ball screen for example yeah right exactly and that and that's the thing is he's 34.5 percent on threes off the dribble and on catch and shoots he's 41.8 percent, which is something he would do a lot more at the next level like the the one of the big like weird things with projecting Jalen pickett is like he dribbles the ball the entire shot clock right now. Like he is the Purdue offense. Like the Purdue offense is Jalen Pickett dribbles until Jalen Pickett finds something he likes, uh, whether that's passing it off or shooting it. And he's not like a selfish, like I'm going to rack up assists kind of guy. Like the stats might read that way, but it doesn't feel like that. Like watching the games, like it feels like he's playing to win. Um, I truly believe he does that though. Cause they really don't have too many other secondary creators that nobody you want to turn to and be like, yeah, yep. go, go make this out of nothing for me. Exactly. So. Exactly. Like it's not, it's a product of the environment and a product of that. It's the best way for them to win rather yep. than like this guy just wants to dribble the ball all the time. Um, so yeah, like he's, he's hyper productive and he does it in weird ways. And like a lot of his threes are like, off of him like setting a screen for somebody else like it's just it's weird stuff for a guy who's basically going to be a point guard at the next level um defensively i like him as an off-ball defender quite a bit just because like his understanding of the game is super mature like he he really knows how to play as we talked about on offense and that's there on defense like he can telegraph things well he knows where to be standing he's engaged the concern defensively is the speed he's he's really slow um he doesn't get up very well to contest um and like one some of the clips i post in the article is like him having a hard time getting around screens being a step slow at the point of attack and in two of those clips it's against Braden smith at purdue who is not like a guy that everyone is like oh man that's an nba athlete right there like Braden smith phenomenal college player already as a freshman but not a guy that people are like oh yeah like Braden smith nba dude nba athlete so there's some real just kind of physicality concerns there's the age concern he's gonna be 24 before the start of the season there's the fact that this game is so quirky but at the end of the day we're talking about a guy who is averaging 18.1 points 7.3 rebounds seven assists and is 38.8 percent from from three and 72 or i'm sorry 52.6 percent from the field so it's just like all right well like what else what else can he do like what else can he do to make you happy given you, how much production he's putting in you know who he reminds me of i haven't thrown this comparison at okay you. I'm a little nervous, but I'm excited. He, he, when I watch him, he seems like a, a, a bigger, stockier Jordan McLaughlin. That's the guy who comes to mind when I watched him at USC. Okay. Very, very steady okay. operator. Another guy who loved to hang on to the ball, loved to probe, loved to, to find the right play to make for others. Another guy who, you know, better assist to turnover ratio than not. He was a guy, I believe, in his last college season. 7.8 assists to 2.6 turnovers. So same ballpark, but another one of these really steady operators. The jump shot was never necessarily a strong point mm-hmm. for him per se, but about the same mark three point range in his last year at USC compared to what Jalen Pickett's doing right now at Penn yeah, state, not volume, known to yeah. be like this deadly outside shooter, but he's held on the backup point guard jobs time and time and mm-hmm. time again in the NBA. And he's a smaller, again, he's a smaller version 
of somebody. But like, he got like a lot Jaylen of Pickett. steals, though. Like double the steals of Jalen Pickett. And, like, I, even I, though he's smaller, I'm talking offensively. I wasn't. Okay, if you yeah, want to yeah, throw yeah. in some of the defensive stuff, sure. But yeah, like like I'm talking offensively as a table setter. Like that's the type of guard that he reminds me of. And those types of mm-hmm. guards can stick around in the NBA, even if they're not like seventh, eighth men in your rotation. They can still hang on to roster spots because they're steady, they're reliable, they know how to play the game the right way, and they can man your 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 second unit offense when you need mm-hmm. somebody to step up and do so, especially one that's built around heavy pick and roll. We're, we're playing with a lot of primarily spot up guys in that second unit. So we just need someone who can create shots for others. Jalen Pickett can, can go do that for you in a pinch. And that that's why I think he can absolutely stick around in the league. Yeah. I, I like, I think there's a real chance of it. It's just, I, I think the age might scare a team out of drafting him. Like, I feel like he's more likely to be an undrafted guy just because that way it's like maybe easier to cut bait. If he comes into camp and you're like, you know what, this just isn't, this isn't going to pan out. Right. Um, but yeah, at the same time, it's like, yeah, the, the productivity is so ridiculous and he's so trustworthy that it's like, usually like, there are guys, there are guys that I've seen where it's just like, I don't know what this is going to look like in a smaller role. I don't know if they can do it, but because Pickett is so smart and plays the way exactly the way his team needs him to. Yep. It's like, well, if there is a guy that's going to be able to drastically change the role, maybe it's him. I, I agree. I agree with you 100%, and that's why I would still, again, I'm not ranking Jalen Pickett inside of a top 60. He could end up there, as you said, in your column specifically, as, as more guys declare, don't declare, he could wind up in a draftable range just by default. But as somebody who you're looking at him as as a possible, bring him into camp, maybe toss like an Exhibit 10 at him, you know, eventually get him on a two-way contract. Like this, this is the type of guard who you're, you're looking at somebody with experience, you know, what you're going to get from him. You're you're not playing any games. So I thought that Jalen Pickin was an interesting discussion point there to bring up. When we come back, we will get into the meat and potatoes of this podcast, which are the, the top names who I got to see over the last week. Just going to take a quick ad break. Be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, we are back. So, Maxwell, are you ready to dig into some of the guys that I got to see up close and personal? Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to, to hear your impressions because I know there's one that you let out in the uh, – in the group chat, and I was like, oh, man, here we go. So I'm really excited to hear it. Well, I, I think we're going to lead off with that guy, if I'm correct, and, and Taylor Hendricks. And I, yep. I, I, it wasn't more so I let it off in the group chat, but I tweeted something, and someone's like, oh, man. That's what it was. Nate, yep. Nate coming in hot, and you texted me on the side. Taylor Hendricks for UCF. I have a column coming out this week, the morning dunk that's dropping same day as this podcast about some of my top risers on my new edition of my big board that's going to go into the no ceilings composite big board when we do that pre-tournament update. I moved Taylor Hendricks into the top 10 of, of my big board. I moved him right into that 10 spot. And that was once territory where 
you know, Kevin O'Connor was the main name in the mainstream draft space to really move him there and be like, yeah, he may not have the highest upside as some of these other guys who we could have in this range. But I think his floor, his bet in terms of what his projection looks like in a lower outcome, as opposed to even like a medium or a higher end outcome, we're willing to make that bet on that guy more so than taking swings on some of these other players and prospects that we can in that lottery range. And really when I saw Taylor, I made that adjustment to my big board before I got to that game on Thursday night. I sat there with our good buddy, Corey Tulliba right there at the temple game. I made that adjustment beforehand, but when I came out of it, he justified that and more. He, he finished that night with 16 points, seven rebounds, two steals and a block to really stuff the stat sheet. But Maxwell, it's, it's the simple stuff. He's not trying to do anything fancy, but what he does, mm-hmm. he does well. Spot up shooter, turn face, release guy, somebody who he has the ability to cut to the basket. I wish Corey and I would have seen it more. I wish we would see it more on film in general over the course of the college season, but he is a good athlete for his size. 6'9", can certainly dunk the ball home, has the frame that you want to work with up top to fill out and really be one of those potentially bigger four men for his size in the NBA, be it be a strong guy who fills out well. But yeah, the, the jump shooting and then what really stood out to me in person, Maxwell, was not necessarily the stuff that he did offensively. It was the defensive stuff. Like this guy covers so much ground on the court at all times. And when you talk about his role and what it would be at the NBA, you want him to be a four man. He's not a guy who I would pigeonhole into this. Yeah. Maybe he can play some small ball five at different points. I think his base is a little too narrow for that. I don't trust how his lower body is going mm-hmm. to fill out for that. And, and I think when he goes up against some of those bigger centers, like we talked about, I don't know if that's the matchup I want him on. I think he's much better playing next to a traditional center, giving him some ability to kind of roam and, and, and play different roles defensively because when he has to break all the way to the opposite end of the court for a, a, a closeout on a quarter shot, for example, he can do that for you. Like there was one player in particular I remember seeing where he, he had, he had one foot, outside the paint on like the opposite side. And then he sprinted to the other corner and he ended up getting like a hand on, on, on the freaking three point shot or very close to getting like a, a hand on the three point shot. Like I'm talking legitimate, legitimate corner contest. Like when you have a big man at his size who can move that well and cover that much ground so quickly, that's the type of player you want defensively on your team. And then, Oh, by the way, he offers the very, legitimate shooting projection he's 41.8 percent from three on the year on 4.6 attempts you echoed very early on at the beginning of the year or towards the beginning yeah. of the year like, yeah taylor hendricks i'm buying the shot i'm coming all the way in on it. i think it's going to project well of the nba just again the defensive playmaking potential the fact that he doesn't get lost in any one particular area on the court defensively and then offensively he has more room to build out his game on the simple play types. And if he ever takes that drastic step forward and improves his handle, like he wants to, like Steven Gillespie got to specifically ask him about in an interview, what do you want to work on at the next level? He called out his dribble. He wants to become a, a better shot creator, not just a shot maker. If he takes that step forward, then we're not just talking about the 10th best prospect attempts in the draft. We're talking about a guy who could wind up producing top five top six value and that's yeah that, that's hyperbole that that's just realistic truth just given the sample size the film 
and the stats coming all together in one Maxwell. He's on offense. He's a 90 plus percentile total offensive player on defense. He's a plus 80 total defensive percentile player. Like the, this is about as good of a prospect for a freshman as we're going to have in the draft. Yeah. I feel like I've been, so in my expanding big board this week, I'm not really going to touch it. Like we're, we're submitting big boards next week. Spoiler alert for consensus big board. So I'm going to like really sit down after my column this week and then kind of like sift through those rankings. But it just seems more and more like foolish to not be betting on him because he is like what every NBA team's looking for. Like he's, he's six foot nine. He's long. He covers ground. He can make the simple pass. Uh, and he's going to be able to guard the positional spectrum. And I, I just feel like whenever I start to worry about his game, I feel like I'm picking nits. Like, I feel like I'm being like, Oh, but his technique isn't perfect guarding on the perimeter yet. And so he's going to figure it out. He's going to figure that out. He's a good athlete. He's exceeded expectations already. The attitude is great by all accounts. Like it's going to get there. Um, and, and that's like most guys, his size, like are not well-rounded multi-position defenders coming to the league. They have the tools to do it. It's just a matter of, are they going to, or are they not? Um, but yeah, I love the shot of really very early in the year. Like you said, like, I bought it just because it's a gorgeous shot. Like it is high release. It is pretty. It is balanced. Like everything about the shot is beautiful. Um, yeah, the, the stuff he's going to be able to do defensively is a weak side rim protector. Um, something I don't think gets mentioned enough with him is this offensive rebounding. Like that's just a great tool. Like he is like a weird kind of inside out option because of that offensive rebounding. Um, as he gets stronger, he's going to become a better play finisher too. Like I, I just think he's well-rounded. He's giant he looks every bit of six foot nine. Like there are a lot of guys that we've talked about in the no things group chat before being like, how tall do we actually think this guy is? Taylor Hendricks is not one of those guys. That nope. dude is nine. Um, yeah. Lights out shooter, 40 plus percent shooter, great defensive instincts, already productive defender with room to grow on that in the floor. It's like the more you just explain the basic parts of this game, it kind of feels like, Hey, don't overthink it. That's a guy you take in the top 10. You, you talked about, you know, picking nits as far as like some of his perimeter technique. The, to me, one of the better indicators as far as a big man coming out on the perimeter and defending in space against quicker guards would be in, in, in pick and roll defense, right? When, when you're playing a switch heavy scheme, he gets onto that ball handler. What is that pick and roll ball handler doing against him offensively? Well, in those coverages, he, he's defended nine of those shots from the pick and roll ball handler, and they've made two out of nine against mm-hmm. him. So 22% shooting against him in those situations. He's actually been a better post-up defender than, than what indicates. So maybe if his body does continue to fill out, maybe if I'm wrong about the narrower base and he he just completely gets tree trunk legs out of nowhere and he can hold his own against the seven footers in the NBA, then maybe he's going to be a good post-up defender as well. But there, there isn't really one defensive metric I can point to other than the rebounding percentage where he rates out low. And, and the rebounding, I think that's the other thing I come back to Maxwell we talked about it with Osoe Godaro, right? Those, those small ball five lineups mm-hmm. where if you're going to be the primary rebounder at that position on the floor, then he probably needs to play with two or three other plus positional rebounders to, to, yeah. to be able to really bring the that defensive full rebounding circle. isn't yeah, isn't anything special. It's not great. But at the same time, just given all the other value he presents in other areas of the floor, I think we're willing to live with something like that, especially if he's playing the four man much more exclusively next to a five. So I guess mm-hmm. the biggest question I can ask about you, uh, about about Taylor Hendricks to you, do you think the shot creation is going to come along? 
do you think there's actually a realistic outcome where he reaches that level of production and he can crack through and be, you know, a, a secondary or tertiary shot creator as opposed to just more like a spot up guy play finisher? Um, that's a really good question. It's a loaded uh, question. I know. Yeah, it is. I, I think it's possible. I know it's like a cop out answer, but I trust his instincts and I think he's already gotten better at like putting it on the floor. And like, I've always noted, like it's a decent job of like playing low with his dribble at the very least. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder if, do you think like a Jeremy Grant level creator is like a reasonable outcome? I, I think that would be a higher level, higher level okay. outcome. Because Jer- Jeremy Grant is yeah. really good at getting downhill, getting to the rim, right? And, and, he's and then gonna he can be, also get to the stronger play. too. It's so like, a, like I feel like Jeremy plays stronger. Um, I don't think Taylor Hendricks is ever going to be this really awesome. Like I'm going to get all the way to the basket from the top of the key kind of guy, but especially like on an island. Like I think it's more yes. like when when defenses are tilted and rotating, can he catch it and decide that it looks better to drive to the basket versus like just shoot it? Um, and I think, I think that's a possibility. Like, I think, I don't know. I, I, I just, I think the handle is like functional enough that if he's like your fourth best player, it's fine. But I think if, if you're talking about him being like a top three option, then, then I think he has to hit that higher end outcome. Well, because that to me, if if he was able to hit that higher end outcome, that would justify him going higher than like anywhere from like ten to to fifteen in the draft. Like if you're if you're taking Taylor Hendricks in my mind above like the tenth spot, for example, then you must really think something like that is is in his future. I so do you if you have him top ten, or is that more just a product of you being lower on this draft? That that's so. That's more so if I were drafting him above that 10 to 15 range. Like I, I think 10 to 15 is a pretty reasonable spot for him mm-hmm. at this point. But like, let's, let's say a team's sitting at like the seventh spot and they don't value too many other Ooh, options okay. that's, that are on the draft board. And they look at Taylor Hendricks, like I'll, I'll give a little bit of a spoiler. I'm going to be a guest on a Pacers podcast on, on Monday mm-hmm. night. I, I will let you guess as to which podcast that is, but we're going to talk about potential options for the Pacers with their lottery pick. And right now they're sitting at seven in the standings. I look at Taylor Hendricks as someone who could possibly fit that team pretty well, just given some of the needs that they have, but is taking somebody like him at seven too rich for your blood. And for me, I think that answer would ultimately be yes. And that he certainly wouldn't be my first choice that high of a spot, because I don't think, he's going to be like a Jeremy Grant level creator in terms of being able to get all the way to the basket in like an isolation setting. I think I want Taylor Hendricks to be focused on being able to bust out like a really quick dribble move off a jab step and then being able to step back, hit a jump shot, like like around the elbow or, or like something along those lines. I want him to be comfortable creating a shot, some type of jump shot off the bounce, which he's shown in minor flashes at UCF. He has the ability to do that. I'm not as concerned about him turning, facing, getting all the way to the basket. I, I would love it if so you're talking more like one dribble, two dribble pull up than like Ex- exactly. He's, that's, he's that's attacking and getting about. downhill and finding the open man while he's doing it. Right, because you can you can divert and split off shot creation in multiple different avenues. I I don't think that 
path is going to be there for him. But I do think the one, two dribble pull up off like a, a jab step, quick dribble move, step back. Like, I think that stuff is in his future. And if it is, then again, I become much more inclined to think about him possibly a little bit higher than the 10th spot. But even if he's just the spot up threat that he is right now, somebody who gets more active cutting to the basket off the ball, maybe you start involving him in a little bit of action in the post. Maybe you utilize him around the elbows. That's what he is. I still think I'm taking him inside the top 10. And maybe it is a product of some of the other options we have in this draft class. Maybe I'm just not as sold as some of these other guys in the late lottery range. I'd much rather just take somebody like Taylor Hendricks at this point. Like where, where is he on, on, on your board he, right so now? I know was, it's not your final. Was, update, yeah. But. So he was, he was 13 on my board last week. Okay. Um, That's where he was for me too, before I moved him up. Which like, yeah, I think I could, I could realistically see him as high as nine, honestly, on my board. Like I, this is going to upset people, but like I could see him above like, so the people I have right in front of him are Casey Wallace, Grady Dick, Nick Smith Jr., Keontae George. And like, I think I might like to on a given day, I might like him better than all of those guys, which is yeah, so, so maybe a little controversial, but I, I don't know. I, I could talk myself into it. So my 11 to 16 range after Taylor mm-hmm. Hendricks, I have Keontae George, Casey Wallace, Bryce Sensabaugh, Jalen Huchifino, Anthony Black, Nick Smith. That's yeah. my 10 to 16 right now. I think I'd probably rather draft Taylor Hendricks at that 10 spot than talk myself into taking one of those other guys yeah. that high. Because we, we talked about it last week with some of feels, these outcomes. He feels safe. Like, that's the other thing, too, is, like, he's just giant and he can shoot and he knows how to play defense. So... Yeah, when are those like, things not working out in the NBA? I don't know. Like, the worst version of Taylor Hendricks still seems like a guy that's, like, on NBA teams. <laughs> right? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like... And that's what teams should be doing better than Derek Jones. Yeah, they should be taking those guys that we think are going beyond NBA rosters at the bare minimum for a long time. mm -hmm. Not these guys who have outcomes where you can talk yourself into, could he be out of the league in like three to four Mm -hmm. years, right? Like Keontae George and Nick Smith and Anthony Black do not have as safe a pathway as I think as people think they do. Bryce Sensabaugh, we've nitpicked him enough as good as he's been on offense. We've nitpicked him enough about the defense and and some of the other flaws. I like Bryce. I I love him too. Cason Wallace has every single skill I want from a guard in the book, but for whatever reason, it just doesn't seem to all come together for him more often than not. So if he's inconsistent, you know, Jekyll and Hyde type of guard in the NBA – and do I want to value that guy more than somebody like Taylor Hendricks? And then Jalen Huchifino, Jalen Huchifino had another great game today against Michigan. And like when he, when it all comes together for him and he's yeah, having his one good of his games best games, great. Well, yeah. he, he has the best hot streaks of like any other player. I think I've evaluated in this class who isn't named Victor and Scoot. And yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm saying he's had some games where I'm, I come away more impressed than like some of Brandon Miller's like, like best hot streak games. Like he is, mm-hmm. he is freaking awesome when it's on, but when he's off, Man, it, it looks bad when he's off and when he's turning the ball over constantly in traffic and like all that type of stuff. So like just given those flaws that I outlined for those prospects, how many of those flaws am I whipping out for Taylor Hendricks? He's he he's probably the poorest dribbler of the names we're talking about in the top sure. 16 yeah, oh, yeah, range. Yeah, yeah. But how much do we really want him handling the ball, right? He's probably one of the poorer passers in that range that we're talking about. How often do we need him to create looks for others? You see what I'm saying? Like, Yeah. I, I think like the concern would be like, okay, well then what if I'm in a playoff series, the other team is just like 
running him off the line. Then what? Like, but does that even happen? You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I don't know. I don't is, know. Is he He's not going to be? Is he option. not going to be able to shoot over the top? He has a pretty high release. That's the thing. Yeah. So it's like I like and and is that like really going to be the thing? Like if even like where we're projecting him as people that really like him, it's still like. Was that going to be the game plan to like smother? Like if if he's just getting smothered on the perimeter, it's like well then he, he, right. he's still creating a ton all of right. space. Like all right, here, here here's here's my very quick counter to the well in this specific scenario is he getting up played off the floor in a playoff series? If he's not defensively, yeah. If he's playing that many minutes for a team that went to the playoffs, that probably means mm-hmm. he's been a pretty damn good player throughout the season or, or a good contributor <laughs> yeah. on like a yeah. great team. So like if with it, if that's really the nit we're going to pick with him in that kind mm-hmm. of scenario, I think that that argument kind of sees itself out to, to a certain yeah. extent in relation sure. to some of the other players we're looking at in a draft class in a similar mm-hmm. range. So those are my thoughts on Taylor Hendricks. He's a player who's really grown on me. There, there's not much we're necessarily adding to the conversation in relation to him, but it was more so confirming my positive thoughts on him, seeing him in person. And like, yeah, the athleticism, the size, both of those boxes clearly check out the shooting clearly checks out the defensive mobility, the ground coverage, the playmaking, they, they all check out. So what am I really leaving behind with Taylor Hendricks at this point? He is a top 10 guy for me. I'm sure there's going to be plenty more conversation about him in the coming months and where he sits on other people's draft boards. I'm curious to see where he does end up on our no ceilings composite big board update. I'm very curious to see where he gets out. Yeah, so, he's like one of the guys I'm kind of like, where is everybody on this guy? What's the temperature here? That should be that should be an interesting one. And the next guy is one of those people too. Yeah, we're, we're going to take one more quick ad break. When we come back, we are going to discuss two names that I got to see Saturday night in particular who, again, the, these guys are growing on me. They're rising up plenty of big boards fast. Stay tuned. You'll find out who those guys are. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, we are back off our last break in this podcast. So I got to see Villanova and UConn in person Saturday night. I really wanted to see Cam Whitmore in person. So Cam Whitmore was a prospect, Maxwell, who I was really, really, really high on him. Like at this point last season, when we're getting into like McDonald's All-American game season and like Jordan Brand Classic, like all like the exhibition events for high schoolers. I'm tweeting out every chance I get, like, pay attention to Cam Whitmore. This guy's been undervalued in terms of where I feel he should have been from a recruiting ranking standpoint. I think he's going to blow up to Villanova. He could be a big-time NBA prospect. Get an eye on him. He he. Every exhibition he played in, he knocked him out of the park. He was a standout prospect to the point where he rose up to, like, the top five range on people's preseason draft boards. And I think he ended up either five or six, if I, I, I don't quote me on that. I think it was around five or six for us. No ceilings, our first composite big board update on the year. So he's been, he's been in a very high conversation and something I talk about in my piece, as well as I've talked about in other 
risers and fallers conversations, any sort of movement in the lottery, if you're moving a few spots, I do equate that to the same as if you're outside like the top 20 guys or so, and I'm moving you like 10 or so spots up and down a big board. That's the same level of movement because when you get up to the lottery, there's only so many names that we're talking about, right? So any type of movement can potentially be drastic. So Cam Whitmore was hurt to start the year, right? Had the thumb injury, came back, wasn't fully himself, wasn't shooting the ball up to the expectation that we thought he should be, was very clumsy and, and like falling all over the place was something we, we talked about. It's like, he was yeah, like, very weird. Prospect. And then someone, someone too was like, yeah, look at this high school scouting report I did. <laughs> They're like, yeah, he falls down all the time. Uh, yeah, it seems like that's been a little better lately though. So I, I was just going to say, so he was like a very bizarre prospect to watch for, mm-hmm. for like a month, month and a half. And then something just seemed to click for him, man. And he has been so much better, especially in the month of February. He he's shooting the ball much better. He's been he's been a more consistent finisher at the basket. He's getting to the line. He's defending multiple positions. The the defense again. The, 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 this is so. So this is really another reason why I love to see players in person. It's number one. I want to see how big they are. I want to see how how athletic they are. How quick they are. How they're processing the game. How when I'm watching their eye movement, eye movements on the court. I want to watch how they're interacting with guys. Like these are all fun things that I really like to take note of in person. But I also like to see how guys flow within within a defensive scheme. Are they communicating with one another? How many positions can they actually guard? What, what does it look like they're going to be able to do at the NBA level? I'm able to evaluate those things a lot better in person. This is just me than I am sometimes on the tape. And when I saw Cam Whitmore defensively the other night, man, holy cow. The, the, this guy, I, I, I have strong confidence when he's locked in, when he continues to improve and is more fully aware of everything that's going on around him, I think he's going to be able to guard one through four in the NBA. Really? I, okay. I, I truly believe that. I, I think he is that quick. I think the feet are that good. I think he's long enough. I think he's competitive enough. And if, he's, if he has to guard other backcourt players – he's going to body them up and possibly bully them and, and take their lunch money. Like he is a monstrously big wing. Yeah. I would categorize him more as like a forward. Like if I'm looking at yeah, him, yeah, yeah. if you see him in person, you might he's think three, like, four. is he going to be a power forward in the NBA? Like, mm-hmm. but he has the perimeter wow. skill offensively to be a three long-term, which is nuts. He mm-hmm. has the ball skill. He has the footwork. He has that first step explosion. He has the leaping ability. He has the the perimeter shot making potential, not just making open spot up threes, but he's another one of these guys who he makes some tweaks to his handle and you could see him all of a sudden creating some of the shots in the mid range like he certainly showed he could on the high school tape. He's proven to me he can hit three-point shots at a good enough level to come into the league. He may not be an above average shooter the, the, the minute he steps foot in the NBA, but I think within two to three years, he will be at that league average mark. I'm very confident in his ability to finish around the basket. He's not going to get pushed off his spots. He will finish through contact. You could talk me into him being a two-level scorer right now, Maxwell, and I do think eventually that third level has a pretty decent chance of getting there. So this is just one of those things. Really athletic forward, plenty of positional size, three-level scoring potential, multi-positional defensive potential. If you're not ranking him inside of your top five, Maxwell, are you overthinking it? That's a good question. So he is five for me and he is in danger of being passed. Um, Oh boy. I change my mind about the Thompson twins like eight times a week. Like I still, (laughs) I still need to 
deep dive. It's hard because like when I make my film schedule for the week, a lot of the times I'm just looking at like who's playing each other in college. And, like the Thompsons don't play other pro prospects. Um, so it can be really difficult to get them on the schedule. So that is like first order of business as soon as the tournament is over. I do need to watch those two playoff games that, that just happened between the, the Reapers and the Dreamers. They weren't available for me to watch yet um, this morning. So I haven't seen them yet. But the last playoff games, they looked phenomenal, both of them. And then Asar's been freaking, has been freaking. Asar's awesome. been hitting threes again. He's been hitting free throws. And then a man hit a three where he didn't do the weird wrist thing at the top. And like that in and of itself, I was like, I'm about to overreact to this and make this man number four on my board. Overreaction uh, yeah. Monday as they do on the Rich Eisen show. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I need to just kind of dig in and like go to town on, on their like full season of film and to see where do they start? Where did they end? What do I like? Um, but so here's my big question with Cam Whitmore, because we're talking about like overthinking it. And I, I am very scared about a certain element of his game. It was a part of his game that I liked quite a bit, especially in like the all-star exhibition game, like circuit film was like, it felt like in high school cam did a very good job of like recognizing when help defense was coming and just making the very easy dish off pass. And I know this Villanova team is a mess, but his, I, assist I, percentage... I will argue against that point, but I'll, let you okay. So yeah. So I'm just going to lay it out real quick. So his assist percentage is very low. Like I mentioned my database earlier, the only guy he's ahead of on there right now is Anthony Gill. That's it. That's the only guy in that database. that he has a better assist percentage than, uh, he still turns it over quite a bit. He can get really forceful with this passes. Uh, the handle can come a little loose. Like I, I see the vision for Cam Whitmore. I'm with you. I think the defense is like better than it's been. I think the like shot blocking has been sort of muted because of the injury and things like that. And I think that could like really come around at the next level. Um, love the frame, love the body, love that he's a 38% catch and shoot guy. Um, and I think just the, the simplified nature of like, he's going to defend, he's going to hit threes off the catch. He's going to drive to the basket with ferocity and a gigantic frame and dudes are going to bounce off of him. Like, I like all that. Like, I think that's all good where I have a harder time, like taking him super high is just like, is that passing field there at all? And my ca- my counter to that is, so let's, yeah, you just saw him in person. I want to hear, hear where you're at. So he, he absolutely needs work in terms of reading, not just multiple levels of the defense, but the level that's in front of him being better aware of his surroundings and making the right read off of those very basic play types and decisions. He does still need to improve. I, I, I will give you that. But the other thing I want you to keep in mind is that that Villanova offense is fucking horrendous. There, there is, is no other, yeah. there is no other way around that. Like, if people want to say that Penn State could be a little boring to watch for the reason that we talked about, Jalen Pickett holds onto the ball. They don't really have any other creators, but it's like him dribbling the air out of the ball. I think Jalen Pickett is a much more effective operator than any of the guards that Villanova has, and those guys literally dribble the air out of the ball for, for 30 seconds on the shot clock to where Cam Whitmore, and I noticed this in some other tape that I watched, but really I'm talking about a lot of what I saw in person the opportunities he got, Maxwell, he did not really have too much time to do much of anything with. He, did, he didn't have the time available to him in those possessions to make the types of reads that, that you want to see him make on an NBA floor. He didn't have time to, to, to freaking experiment, to take two dribbles mm-hmm. and then figure out where should he go with the ball next. It's like as soon as he catches it, there's only so much time left. He kind of either has to jack up a shot or he needs to get on his high horse, use that explosive first step, and he has no other option but to get 
all the way to the basket and get a shot up. So I think if he had a little more room to experiment, I wouldn't say there would be a drastic shift in those passing numbers. I think we'd have better flashes on tape. Like when you talk about somebody like, uh, I'm not comparing them directly, but like when people have had qualms about Nick Smith's passing, for example, but even though he's not averaging the, the most assists per game out of some guards in the country, like there are some real flashes you can point to on tape. Be like, yeah, that's an awesome like live dribble pass. Like I buy that that will work. Cam Whitmore hasn't had any real opportunities like that. He only takes less than 10 shots per game, yet he's clearly the most talented player they have on that roster by a country mile. So for all the arguments you want to put out there about potentially low feel on both ends of the floor to certain degrees, Mm -hmm. I would argue he hasn't been put in a role to where he can properly explore the studio space and we can have a definitive answer on what he can do and just shutting the book on what he can't do. That's my argument. All right. I think I think that's all fair. I, I, I don't know. I'm just a little a little worried because it seems like it's just so far behind. If that's I the differentiator for you between year. like rating him on a big board between him and like the Thompson twins, mm-hmm. I th- yeah, he's he's not. He's he's just not a man in a sar from from that perspective. And I, I, I don't no, think no, he's no, ever no, going. I think he's a much better shooter, and I think he's much more physically developed than both of them. Bingo. And I think that matters substantially, but bingo. So I think more of that can come along developmentally. I think he can get better at that as he gets a little bit more of an expanded offensive role in the NBA, but it's not there. It's probably not going to be there to their level. So yeah, if that's a differentiator, not just for you, Maxwell, but for any scouts out there, if that's a really big differentiator for you, or you're an NBA team that believes in having a high assist rate across the board, like you want a bunch of guys who can move the ball effectively at all times. If you're the Oklahoma City Thunder, you're probably not the most enthused by everything you've seen from Cam Whitmore offensively from that perspective. If you're the Indiana Pacers, you might not be jumping the gun as much as I feel they should be at taking a guy like Cam Whitmore because that's another team with a really high assist rate across the board. They want guys who can just zoom that ball all the way across the court until they find the right three-point shot, and they're going to take it. They play at a really high pace. So Cam Whitmore, for all that he can do individually from a transition perspective, he's also not fitting into a culture in that regard, at least not right out of the box. So it can be something that knocks him down a few pegs on the board. But even Maxwell, even if you put those other two guys ahead of him, let's say let's say your big board, you got you got Victor Scoot, you got Brandon Miller, Jairus Walker, and the Thompson Twins in some order, and you're looking for the next guy up, then at that point, I really don't think it's much of an argument. I think you have to have Cam Whitmore at seven, for, at least from a lot of what mm-hmm. I've seen. Is, yeah, is yeah, that yeah. kind of where you're going to settle? That's, that's my exact top seven uh okay top floor spot on and then like thompson's and cam is like where it gets shaky and i think the thompson's might possibly they, they have a, a way to surpass jairus depending on how i come out of the film but i would agree with that i can i had a sar as high as three on my board already he was three and... for me for a long time and then the shot fell off and like the finishing started to really scare me but and then brandon miller just started to make almost everything he looked at in more games than not. And the playmaking feel started to come alive and, and he started to be a better defender multi-positionally. And then Jairus is well, well, Jairus is just a monster human being. And there's, I, there's not really much. I don't trust Jairus to do on a basketball court. If I'm being mm. perfectly honest. And I think that's more so the reason why I have him so high on my board. I'm not, I'm not saying he's a, he's a superstar across the board, but 
there's very little that I don't trust him to do to a, at least a, a bare minimum certain degree. And I think that's a separator for him amongst some of those other prospects. The Thompson twins, they have all the gifts in the world. They, they are, they are truly, you know, borderline generational athletes. Are they going to put enough of their games together to, to really mesh at the NBA level? Maybe we're all overthinking it. Maybe they should be like top five pretty definitively. Maybe they should be three and four. I don't know. I, I'm just kind of giving a sort of where I'm at and indicators that I buy into positional size, athleticism, strength, coordination, shooting ability. I'm seeing all of it from Cam Whitmore and it's hard to talk myself out of him at this point. So as of right now, I have him fifth on my board as well. The last guy I got to see, we won't spend too much time on him, but Jordan Hawkins for UConn doesn't really break out of the box offensively other than the shooting. I mean, the shooting, obviously. He's Which taking, is, uh, he does break out of the box pretty big as a shooter. So it's, yeah. it's not the end of the world for Jordan Hawkins. The, by any means. No, no, he is. He's still taking around seven attempts from three per game. He's still making 38% of them. Like he, he is a ridiculous volume shooter like you watch him warm it's up maxwell crazy. his shot is effortless yeah. it, it's amazing I, I i love watching him shoot i came into the year not being as high on him and rating him inside my top 25 which i do have him at he 25 now mm-hmm. because the two-point percentage which it's still kind of down for, for a guard but that scared me it's like if he's only shooting the basketball and that's all he's doing he better be doing it at a freaking spectacular clip and he has been all year long and then you throw in some of the the fun effort flashes that i got to see in the villanova game like going up for offensive rebounds going after it on on the defensive end as far as playing passing lanes double teaming at the right times rotating at the right times and then when he does have a lane to the basket he can get a step on you like you won't expect it but he'll get a step on you he'll take that lane and all of a sudden he'll be at the basket throwing it down so like he he's an underrated athlete too which i think multiple people here are no ceilings talked about so yeah, that's interesting you bring that up because I, I was talking to Bryce Simon, a friend of the program, about uh, shout out about Bryce. Jordan Hawkins. Yeah, he does does great work. Um, and I like laid out some of my concerns. One of the things I mentioned was the athleticism. And he was like, "Go watch the Seton Hall game," and like in the Seton Hall game, I think he had like a couple dunks. Like he was like really getting it moving. He was passing it, and it was like one of those games where it's like, man, am I like blowing some of this stuff out of proportion? as far as like what I have concerns about, but yeah, I think he's like one of those guys where he's so truly special as a movement shooter that it's like, this guy's going to be around. Like think about how many, uh, like, okay. So again, like we're going to play like the worst case scenario game. Think about how many opportunities Matt Thomas has gotten to be an (laughs) NBA player. And like, think about how much better Jordan Hawkins is than Matt Thomas. You know what I mean? Like it's one of those things where it's just like, I don't know. Hard not to draft a guy in the first round when you think they're going to be around for a really long time. And he's also just a total dog defensively. He is. Like he just absolutely gets after it on that end and gets up in guys' faces, dives on the floor for loose balls. Like his work rate is absurd. Like he's one of the highest work rate players in the country as far as like he is all over the place on defense without like doing anything, like totally playing within himself. Like doesn't gamble, doesn't do dumb stuff ever. Um, and then on offense, he's like running off screens the whole game. I was like, gonna say he's he's one of those guys who's in great shape. Sure. Like, if you're yeah. telling me he's gonna he's gonna get close to like the 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 amount of miles that like JJ Redick has ran in his career, like that yeah, that wouldn't shock me. Like he he is in great shape for for a guard. 
yeah so i i just i think there's a career for him um even if it doesn't like go well um i do think the higher end outcomes can be a little scary just because again kind of a lower assist percentage guys uh but again like if it, like using my same model a lot of guys that like profile that same range were guys like malik beasley were guys like gary trent guys like duncan robinson where it's like those those are knockdown shooters who just run off screens and and take a lot of threes and hit them he's so, he's been starting to figure it out though a little bit in some dho and pick and roll sets which is fascinating yeah not as a pat not as a playmaker but as a shooter scorer he's been starting to figure so, it out a little bit yeah so that's like i i i guess i'm most interested is that so everyone knew he was like a good shooter before and it was those yep. things where he shot okay as a freshman but the people that were really bought into him coming into this season are the people that were like he's going to be an absurd knockdown shooter and he was um so it's like okay you made that sort of leap just from like getting used to the speed of the game where what does that mean for your playmaking and like where is your playmaking headed because we're still looking at a guy who's like not a high assist guy like pretty even assist turnover guy doesn't have a ton of juice chased off the line not consistently a great finisher like at the rim like you mentioned that he he has moments where he's clearly a better athlete than you'd expect but at the year on the year in the half court he's 48.1 percent at the rim he doesn't always get his like body mechanics right and his steps correct so like a lot of times he does come out flat when he goes to jump at the rim and doesn't get off the floor that well on the go so it's just like is that workable like how do we improve that i don't know like and, and I just kind of wonder, it, or is he just going to provide so much space running around on the perimeter that it doesn't really matter? Well, I just kind of wonder how, how many times in his career has he genuinely been asked to be like, yeah, go be a table setter, go, go out there and make others mm-hmm. better versus like, yeah, we, we know you're the best shooter on the team. Go out there and get us buckets, give us instant offense. Like, I, I just wonder how many times he's honestly been asked to do that in his career. And mm-hmm. that's one of those things where, yeah, if he doesn't have experience doing it, then we can't expect him to come up at high major basketball in the big East and be like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to dissect all of these different passing lanes and I'm going to find the open man. Mm -hmm. Like if that vision hasn't been baked into him at a younger age, then, you know, that's one thing I I haven't watched a lot of his high school tape to be perfectly honest. Like I haven't gone back and studied somebody like a Jordan Hawkins and watched how he played in in AAU and played in high school. Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's an exercise for some of these lower assist rate guards. Maxwell, I think maybe that's something that you and I go and do. The, the, mm-hmm. this draft cycle maybe that's an interesting exercise for us yep. to figure out well if they've never really been asked to do it how can we expect them to all of a sudden turn around and show us all these amazing flashes so that's kind of where i'm at on 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 that front but to your point yeah the shooting the nuclear shooting the movement shooting you know off screens 86 percentile spot up 96 percentile yeah miscellaneous plays 97 percentile so really like when the offense breaks down they don't even know how to categorize it properly like yeah he can make something out of nothing with a jump shot and it's led me to compare him and i whipped this out to, to you in a, in a chat like a bigger isaiah joe like that that's yeah, the type of comparison yeah, yeah. that i come up for him and like isaiah joe i had him 30th on my board in, in, the, in the 2020 draft like literally the same range, like 25. Mason 30. Jones is still going to make it by the way. Both <laughs> of those guys were the two guys. I was like really, really high on in that. A draft Maxwell that deep like, cut really Mason click. Jones shot out. You love to love see that Mason on draft Jones. Mm-hmm. And, and, am I off base with that comparison? Do you, do you think that's pretty spot on? I think, I think that's plausible. Like I, yeah, I think that's like a very real path for him. It's just like a guy who takes a ton of threes and hits a lot of them and yeah, can and get OKC's to threes in a number of ways. Happy. Like he's not the guy who's parked. Like he's not just a guy who stands there and catches like 
they're, they're, they have actions that they can run to set up for him to get those looks. They can use him as a screener. They can just like do different kind of funky stuff to get him looks and know that he doesn't need a lot of time. He doesn't need a lot of balance. He can get it off and he can hit. Well, Oklahoma City fans should be indebted to the 76ers to a degree because Philadelphia just tossed them into the bargain bin. And it was like, yeah. oh, look, Oklahoma City just walked into the loss and found and, and found Isaiah shows now shooting 45% from three for, for a Thunder team that has made some noise in, in recent weeks as, as a team who, yeah, they're probably not like getting into the playoffs, but at the same time, they're, they're, not, they're not a bad team either. They are consistently competitive every single night. And Isaiah Joe is like the perfect offensive injection for, for them, like exactly what they needed. They needed a more consistent spot-up shooter on the wing. They got him in Isaiah Joe. Why can't Jordan Hawkins be that same sort of injection for, for a different NBA team, whoever would like to draft him? So, yeah, like I have him at 25 on my board. Where, where do you have him on your board, Maxwell? Uh, he was right around that same range. So I haven't done a lot of tinkering i've been trying to like tinker less to just like think about players conceptually more it's been like my biggest change that i've made this year so that like when i go into making the board i'm doing it with more clarity and a more sort of thoughtful understanding rather than like i have this guy here i have that guy there um he was i want to say 21st 21st the last time i made a board so he is so that like, means that like conceptually first round guy yeah, like archetype-wise, Hawkins is is exactly who you want to look for in, in like a potential yeah. top 20 prospect. So that that bodes well either mm -hmm. way. Yep. Yeah, that's that's the range I have him in. And like he can only fall so far for me is a thing where it's like I just I don't know. Like what like even like a month ago, it was like what what could he really do that would make me be like, actually he can't shoot. You know what I mean? Like I the stuff that he does well is it's just good enough that he's gonna he's gonna be around for a long time. You and I have gone back and forth like that 26 to 40 range for me is like such like a dumpster oh, fire in terms mess. of what decisions yeah. I actually want to make ranking players. So mm -hmm. Jordan Hawkins, I, I feel very good about where he's at and where he's trending towards as far as when he gets up to the NBA. So that's why he has he has averted that dumpster fire and he sits at 25 on my board currently jumping up 10 spots after sitting at 35. So those were some of the guys who I got to see in person this week. A lot of, a lot of really mm -hmm. good fun names where I didn't expect us to be bringing all of these really home run points to the table for these guys, like information that no one's heard before on any other podcasts or written mediums. But at the same time, having your evaluations validated in person is a very meaningful thing or me yep. meaningful goal to be able to achieve when you can do it. So Anyone out there, if you have the chance to get to a conference tournament or see any of these guys in the NCAA tournament, go, go do so. Go do so. You'll thank yourself later. Trust me, it's worth it. But that's going to do it for this episode of the Draft Deeper podcast. Thank you all so much again for listening and tuning in. Maxwell, I know that we talked about who you're writing for on mm -hmm. Tuesday. We did, we did the Oso Iguodaro piece. And any other potential sneak previews or, or things that you're oh, toying man. around working with? So I just want to say my column this upcoming week has a ton of guys in it. So like, oh boy, enjoy. Cause there are a lot of guys that like, aren't getting a lot of love. We got some Bilal Koulibaly. We got some Michael Cassiedo. Yes. We got some Drew Pember. We got some Jalen Slauson. We got some Dalton connect in there. We're hitting on guys that people aren't hitting on. And I'm really excited about it. Dalton connect Northern Colorado. Maybe a guy, maybe a guy. Take, take a look at the film. They're not playing anymore because they were like 10 and 21 this season. And I swear to God, it's not his fault. He's he's interesting. I swear to God, he's interesting. Uh, so take a look into Dalton Connect. Uh, but yeah, Drew Pember, like 
I, I'm very interested in at the moment. Like that's the guy I've been thinking about a lot. Jacob Toppin. We're hitting. I'm hitting some guys that like could be dudes that are not being talked about at all. That's that's Maxwell's specialty at the prospect overview. Mm-hmm. So make sure you're locking in for his piece Tuesday on NoSillingsNBA.com. Make sure you're reading my column coming out on Monday in the morning. Don't for going over my top risers for my newest edition of my big board. And certainly make sure you're checking out all of the other great content on the No Ceilings NBA podcast feed as well as our website. We got plenty more in the works. It's conference tournament time. It's NCAA tournament time. It's draft season. It's in full swing. I can't wait to continue diving into some more topics with the audience in the weeks to come. But until we meet again on this podcast feed, you can follow myself on Twitter at Draft Deeper, follow Maxwell on Twitter at Boundboards, and of course, follow No Ceilings NBA to stay up to date on when we're dropping our next podcast episode and our next written works. But until then, thank you all for listening. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week.